Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have It's a Wonderful Life, starring James Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore, and Henry Travers. Based on the book, The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern, screenplay by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, and Frank Capra, and directed by Frank Capra. First time talking about him, uh, an absolute legend when it comes to filmmaking. Sure. So welcome back to Rice Smile Films. Happy post-Christmas one day. Merry uh, Christmas one day late. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Uh, we hope you all had a good holiday season and kind of continuing um, with this to all a good night cask. Uh, there, there's just so many more Christmas movies we could come back to that we didn't even consider or touch that are um, are just staples for a, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But from uh, today, we are going to be talking about It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. Uh, there's a lot to talk about with this one. A uh, holiday classic staple in your household. Uh, I don't watch it as as often, probably because it just leaves me in such an emotional wreck at the end of the movie. So uh, it's a good one. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, sentimentality that plays through in those final six, seven, eight minutes. Um, in a good way. In a, in a great in a way. way. In a way that usually nauseates me with most other films. Uh, this it film, it all, comes to, it all comes together in just such a great way. Well, I know we're going to talk about that specifically and why maybe it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, we're going to get into that. But that's certainly one of the pieces in this. Is uh, most definitely. End. Yeah. And then as a staple on our show, uh, our whiskey, Old Forester, Single Barrel. Uh, we're just about finished with this one. We'll see if we can finish this off by episode's end. But uh, this one's pretty good. Uh, the three Old Foresters, honestly, this might be my favorite. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that mm-hmm. one. Yeah, it's got a great. unique taste wholly into itself, which is what a single barrel is. No single barrel is going to taste the same uh, side by side. So I'm telling you, we have that other bottle of Old Forester that's 105 proof. Buckle up, buttercup. That's going to be a party. <laughs> Prohibition era bourbon. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, one thing I wanted to mention, because I put a poll out on Instagram this week, which is kind of where all the... A lot of the action is for just people interacting with stuff. So it was a poll on uh, your go-to Christmas holiday movie. And uh, a lot of stuff, It's a Wonderful Life, Black Christmas, of course. Uh, But Christmas Story was Mm -hmm. on there a lot. And National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation was like a heavy favorite in there. Uh, Along with a bunch of other kind of unique ones like... Rocky Four <laughs> being just a, a holiday staple. It doesn't have to be a Christmas movie. It's just something that you love to watch around that time. So Yeah, that's a good one, too. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and get this started with our flight question. song comes back many many times throughout this movie mm-hmm. buffalo girls won't you come out tonight why don't you hit us with the flight question this week matt one of the main characters in it's a wonderful life is bedford falls mm-hmm. that's the town that they grow up in and this sort of looks like every town usa did they ever say what state this is in is it new york or ohio or i have no idea i always felt like it was indiana yeah it could be i'm not sure mm. That got me thinking about other towns in films that were important so in that space 
the question is pick three towns or communities in film that you would have liked to have grown up in can be from any era at any time, but young Jesse and young Matt growing up in town, A, B, and C. All right. Number, number three for me, these are going to be some odd choices. Uh, Oh, for sure. (laughs) Number three for me, uh, can get a little weird with it. Uh, but it's also a town of coming of age and growing up and just a bunch of crazy shenanigans of supernatural things that tend to happen here. And I got to go Castle Rock, Maine. (laughs) That's the exact same number three that I chose. I swear to God. Let's just talk about it then. Like, look, you want to have some excitement where you're growing up. Mm -hmm. I think that offers plenty of those places. Uh, stay away from the clown, especially as a youth. Um, yeah, that whole area of Maine is just a hotbed of, of activity. <laughs> Are you a fan of the series, the show, Castle Rock? Uh, I saw Hulu, the right? I saw the first four episodes, and it was all right. I guess it wasn't. I it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I literally thought it was going to be like, kind of like a greatest hits of like the world colliding together, which sounds better in my head than probably on screen. So Rob, who we had on the show for Ghost Story, mm-hmm. is a huge Stephen King fan, as we've talked about, and he's really into that show. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's extolled its virtues to me a couple of times. I can't do it. That doesn't mean that I still don't want to be there. There's plenty of action and lots of interesting things to see. And there does seem to be a cadre of available friends that you get to run with. And I think that's important for me growing up, is having a little posse. Mm-hmm. So... You know, like I said, stay away from the house in the corner of Fifth and Elm or whatever street that yeah. is. This, this, I guess, is a little plug that's moderately Stephen King. I, you're going to find this absolutely fascinating. So there's a little podcast I listen to called Best Movies Never Made, and we even kind of did an offshoot of that with some shots mm-hmm. covering unmade films. Mm-hmm. But I listened to this episode the other day, and it's about this unmade thing miniseries continuation called Return of the Thing mm-hmm. that was going to be made by the Sci-Fi Channel. And the writer um, actually got his start on the Shawshank Redemption because he lived in the town and he got just hired on as like a PA by uh, Darabont and then kind of got put under Frank Darabont's wing like as like an assistant for years. Sweet. Until he was like, well, I kind of want to get my own thing made, which was an attempt at Doc Savage uh, mm-hmm. to make that. Mm-hmm. And that fell through. But then he kind of came around to this return of the thing idea that Frank Darabont was going to produce and it was going to be a miniseries for the sci-fi channel. And when they're talking about like conceptually what it was, it sounds awesome. Uh, such as Greg Nicotero was going to do the effects. Can you do a quick pitch? Well, it was just going to like, they picked up uh, the ship, uh-huh. um, uh, this kind of cargo plane and they bring it to the States. Oh wow. And instead of Icelandic uh, like conditions, it lands in the middle of the desert. So you're actually playing with a polar opposite community, albeit isolated, but like now it can't go and freeze in the snow. It's actually available out there. Mm. And then they get into the particulates. This is just kind of a little off topic, but just like the ties to that idea and Frank Darabont and then what that becomes as The Walking Dead was immediately fascinating to me. I think we're doing that because we're talking about expanding a universe. Mm-hmm. So we're expanding the world of universe or expanding the universe of Stephen King with his little Castle Rock town. Yeah. That's crazy that we both chose the same one. That is completely organic, everybody. That's number three. Um, well, let's see if we have all the same ones. I hope not. No, I'm, no. I'm worried about number... I, I Go ahead. Number two for me, taking it all the way back to 1985. Oh, and 19- no. Hill Valley? Hill Valley, California. God damn it. Is that's that what I... Two? Yes. <laughs> okay, so... All right, I had a fourth one in here. I'll let you do Hill Valley, and then I'll, I'll go with 
number two B. Go ahead. Well, Hill Valley's idyllic in the 1950s, and it's kind of a trash bucket in 1985. But uh, I think the journey of seeing the evolution, and much like this film, a person's impact on a town has substantial weight. So um, it's just that town square, too. It's just so iconic in, in film, and it looks like a fun place to grow up back in 55, not so much 85. And definitely a lot 20, 20 uh, 17, I believe, is the part two. Yeah. Agree with all that. Yeah. I have to choose something else. Oh, we go can't ahead, have go the exact same three. 1954's version of New York City from The Godfather. Okay. I like the street hustle element. I like the side street, um, like that farmer shopping, farmer's, farmer's market. market. Yeah. I like the dudes shooting dice on the corner. And as we talked about in the gangster cask, Tour four. I'm fascinated by that level of debauchery or nefaria. But the reason why is the family element. We talked about that a lot, right? Mm -hmm. That's certainly present in gangster films. So I want to go back to that era. It's post-World War II, so it's a little bit cleaner insofar as the foreign turmoil that we might be involved in. But I think as a youth running the streets of New York City in 1954, there was no shortage of great baseball and pizza and plenty of trouble to get into. What's the number one thing I don't want to do in a movie is recreate a bygone era, like street level. Mm -hmm. like, And it's just a testament to Coppola for early 70s to recreate a 1930s New York that looks as good as it does in that movie. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a gr that's a great choice. I'm sure we don't have the same number ones. Okay. I know this will be okay. different. Okay. So do you want to go first or yeah. me? Uh, you go first this time. Shinbone. Oh, okay. The city of Shinbone from Liberty Valance. Mm -hmm. We haven't done a lot with the West on this podcast, mm -hmm. and we, we'll hit that this next year at some point. Yeah. Shinbone is kind of the quintessential Western town, but what I like about that is it's wrestling with the idea, and this is also a Western trope, but I think it's done fairly well in this film. Mm hmm the idea of suppressing the savage in order to be civilized to make it inhabitable by people that aren't gunslinging, hard drinking, gold mining assholes, mm -hmm. which is generally the cowboy trope. Yep. Shinbone does offer that, and that's where a lot of the interplay in that film comes along, is it's the civilized, the civilized trying to outdo the savage. And as a youth in that space, it would be interesting to see which side of those, especially young male, you would sort of sidle up to because there's Jimmy Stewart, shockingly, in his apron the whole entire film, and yeah. that is loaded mm -hmm. in this film. Yeah. And John Wayne is representing every piece of the savage that the cowboy needs to have in order to survive. But here's the thing that's so interesting about that, watching that interplay as Hatfields and McCoys sort of take each other on versus a larger baddie, Liberty Valance, Lee Marvin, brilliantly done by Lee Marvin, mm -hmm. to see all of that and to take that at, an innocent level through a child's eyes and, and decode mm -hmm. who of those two, you're probably going to um, align yourselves with. Cause it's going to be John Wayne. Yeah. But it needs to be Jimmy Stewart. Cause that's the only way the civilization can, can make it. Yeah, that's true. Tackling that with a very rudimentary knowledge of the human condition. That's, you know, prevalent in children, I think would be infinitely fascinating. And so that's my number one shin bone. You've talked about that movie a lot. Is that your favorite John Ford movie? Yes. Yeah. That might be top 10. And you're probably your favorite Western then? No question. Without a doubt. Yeah. Excellent. 
Yeah, we definitely don't have the same number one uh, because I'm going to get real weird with my number one selection because the place I want to grow up and just live, just because everyone's just so colorful and zany and you can get into some shenanigans in this town. It's Twin Peaks, Washington. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, I'm going to hear this I one. I want to talk with the log lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just, just that show is so, it's hard to recommend because you kind of got to get a good barometer on someone's weird level. Yeah. And it's not like a, it's a weird show, but like, it's not like weird like you think. It's just weird in how it's portrayed. It's kind of a comedy. It's a serious procedural cop drama. And then there's weird metaphysical, psychological things happening. That's very the David Lynch side of what he likes to do. But if you're kind of into that, you kind of have a good time just watching these people navigate this very strange town. And and I like that, whether it's Machen Amick and, and all those people or uh, just all the, the great supporting characters in that. Uh, Ray Wise, uh, there's just so, so many people. And Kyle MacLachlan is Special Agent Cooper. Mm-hmm. That's where I want to grow up. I might regret that decision, but um, it, would sh- it, wouldn't be, it won't be boring. <laughs> That's for sure. There'll be plenty to see. And then you'll have a murder sort of kind of carrying the day-to-day news cycle and then all of those other embodiments sort of working through it. And then they'll just forget the murder and it's just back to, back to every, (laughs) back to just everyday nonsense. When I used to work at a video store, one of the suggestions I would always give or get to people that were sort of unwitting would be we wouldn't know what a good movie is and i turned them into twin peaks firewalk with me time and time again goodness Just kind of be an asshole <laughs> yeah because that's not for everybody oh no it's not for hardly anybody really especially well, if you haven't seen the series it's really only for people that have seen the show and then it, it even takes the weirdness to another level uh in a kind of a feature feature length version it, it, everyone should kind of check out twin peaks just to kind of get a feel for it, but you'll either like it or hate it or just kind of fall in between and you don't even know what to think of it. I had three go-tos back in those days. Okay, that one? That one, movie called Queen's Logic mm. and The Hunger. David Bowie. <clears throat> Strange selection of films that I would send our customers to uh, view at their houses. That's pretty good. Excellent. I don't know why the hell Queen's Logic ended up in there. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh-uh. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Matt Matt's picks mm-hmm. uh, up, uh, up there on the... On the board. We'd have to put that in. Have you ever seen Diner? I have seen Diner, yeah. Okay, I think that's a really overrated film. But Barry Levinson. Yeah. That, Queen's Logic, and one other sort of New York proper would make a nice cask of sure. Bore Me to Death, New York. Bore Me to Death, New York. Excellent. All right, Matt, I love your choices. Uh, Yours are great, too. Yeah, let us know which town you'd love to live in. Do you want to get? You want to live a simple life, or do you want to get have a, like a weird upbringing of a kind of determines which town you're going to go to. Yeah. But uh, it's happy hour time. It's time to go to Bedford Falls for this one in a review breakdown of It's a Wonderful Life. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night. You're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's a clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? We've passed him up right along. Because, you know, sir, he's got the IQ of a rabbit. Yes, but he's got the faith of a child. Simple. Joseph, send for Clarence. 
You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. A man down on earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Oh, dear, dear, his life. Then I've only an hour to dress. What are they wearing now? You will spend that hour getting acquainted with George Bailey. Sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I mean, uh, might I perhaps win my wings? I've been waiting for over 200 years now, sir, and people are beginning to talk. What's that book you've got there? Oh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Clarence, you do a good job with George Bailey, and you'll get your wings. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. That's the plot of the movie. There's the whole movie right there. <laughs> Why is Clarence chosen for George? That's a good question. Well, you're thinking about that, can I talk for a minute? Yeah, go ahead. I think there's a river of domestic complexity that's running through George. Mm-hmm. On the surface, it seems pretty simple. Yeah. Like, this is a guy that wants to get out of Bedford Falls and see the world. When you get that onion peeled back and you look a little bit deeper into the motivations that drive character decisions for George in this, mm-hmm. it's unrequited love and a misunderstanding of what family roles should be and playing second fiddle to a younger brother and a little bit of a hard time hearing, which has limited some of his options. He's actually a pretty complex character in my mind. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a simple man. Yeah. Wildly smart and trapped in a business that he doesn't like because he's unmitigatingly loyal to the town Mm -hmm. and his dad, which is such a torturous position to be put in. Yeah. And he could have turned his back on it, you know, way back when, when he <clears throat> could have given the building a loan over to Potter right then and there and got on his little excursion and gone to college. But he decides that's that's not the, the way that this should go down. And you're right, undyingly loyal to, to everybody. So to, therein lies a problem, right? Because Clarence yeah. has the IQ of a rabbit. Mm-hmm. So simple. Mm-hmm. Is George's solution in this film mm-hmm. to get past all of the noise on the periphery and get down to the symphony of his family. Is that what this is? And is Clarence the only way that he can see through all of that other busy, busy, busy noise on the outside to get down to that, that well orchestrated melody that's running through his family? Well, I think Clarence breaks it down for him simply uh, by just giving him a scenario where, Hey, let's just break this all down. I know your entire life story and you're discouraged and you think there's no other options other than to kill yourself. But what if we kind of take a step back in the shoes and if let's just take you off the table and then kind of walk you through that. Like that's a very simple solution to the problems of to financial woes, to emotional strife and grief that George is dealing with in that in that crucial moment. So maybe Clarence is most suited because he can see him on that workman's class level. Keep it simple, stupid. Yep. Remove all that stuff and just get down to here's what your life was with you in it. Mm-hmm. Or the world was with you in it. Yeah. Here's what it is without you in it. Very, very simple. Mm-hmm. And mostly what we're going to find out is without him in it, it sucks. Yeah, it's a, it's a trash dump. It's Hill Valley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Yep. I've always pondered mm-hmm. the decision from the angel hierarchy brass to choose why Clarence. The, uh, the elementals. Yeah, yep. exactly. Why Clarence gets George. Mm-hmm. That's the best I have today. Yeah. I don't know if that's that answer does the uh, 
the way the decision it, justice. Yeah, the way it kind of plays out in that sequence too is like, oh, we got it. It's George's big like, like, oh, let's give it to old Clarence. This is like a Clarence detail. You know what I mean? It's almost kind of like, a, let's see if he can kind of handle that. And it's a big job, but if he can succeed, which I don't know, even know if those elementals think he can succeed in the thing to get his wings. Uh, yeah, it sounds like he's been trying a long time, but here in this state, I think you said it best. It's it's a sim- he's a simple man. And his simp- his solution is going to be simple to make him see the the errors of his ways and what his what he's going to do. But before that, he's got to get caught up with George's entire life leading up to this moment, which is entirely crucial. I always I'm always drawn to this moment where they're. It looks like fun. I'd probably do this if I was if I was a kid, mm-hmm. just sled down in the snow shovels onto the, onto the lake. But you know that that ice is. Is dangerous. Like any any time you're on unstable ice like that, it's real folksy. The way that we're meeting George's ear problem, they're using the shovels that mm-hmm. are used to clean the snow off of Bedford Falls sidewalks and driveways. Yeah, because they're convenient and easy, and it presents a real folksy, simple, fun way to go about spending your time. Mm-hmm. But the really important thing is once. Peter Bailey falls into the lake through the cracked ice and George pulls him out. Right? Yep. Is the chain. Harry ba- Bailey. Sorry, did Harry, I say yeah, Peter? Yeah. Harry, and, and, yeah. Sorry, Harry Bailey. Which falls. one's Peter, the dad? Yeah. 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 They make a chain to pull him out. Yeah. And so they're relying on the other members mm-hmm. of the community to do good for this one person. Mm-hmm. And there's an element of sacrifice in there as well, which. I'm risking and I'm sacrificing for the betterment of the community at whole. That's going to be very prevalent in this film is how much the community matters and the lengths that the people, namely George, mm-hmm. are going to go through to protect it. Well, let's just get get right to the to the very next one then too, which is, you know, it it took George a long time to recover from this incident and, you know, he's got a little job at the local pharmacy here being run by Mr. Mr. Gower, who is hard drinking, uh, but for a reason, you know, you know what I mean? Like everyone's got the issues that they, that they deal with in this story, which is very interesting to me. And he just got word that his, his son died of a flu and taken to, taken to the drinking. And he's like, well, I'm going to get those bastards and sends in this thing of poison to, to go kill people. You know what I mean? And, you know, George kind of sees the way it's playing out and, you know, this is this is George Bailey in a nutshell to me. He's always willing to go above and beyond to do the good thing and do the right thing, and you know, and he catches him right here. And you even you even turn to me like, man, this is a rough scene. Did you hear what I said? Yes, sir. I... What kind of tricks you bring away? Well, why don't you right into the living room right away? Don't you know that boy's very sick? Hey, you're my sword here. You lazy loafer. Mr. Gower, you don't know what you're doing. You put something wrong in those capsules. I know you're upset. Me? You got the telegram and you're upset. You put something bad in those capsules. It wasn't your fault, Mr. Gower. Just look and see what you did. Look at the bottle you took the powder from. It's poison, I tell you, it's poison. I know you feel bad. Don't do my story again. Don't do my story again. Oh, George. George. Mr. Gower, I would never tell anyone. I know you're feeling. I would have felt so good to die. I won't. 
this is going to pay off so much in the the final sequence, but like just establishing bed for the, the characters of Bedford Falls, whether it's Mr. Gower or Burton Ernie and like even Mr. Potter for that matter. Uh, the influence George has on their lives. I'm going to influence myself in this version of the timeline to stop this horrible thing you're going to do. And that man's life's forever changed after that. With George out of that, we find out later that he killed a bunch of people and ended up in an insane asylum. <laughs> so, yeah, Mr. Gower's in the world with George mm-hmm. is really upset because his son has just been in, and he's been informed of his son's death via influenza on this Western Union telegram. I wonder if that's World War One. Yeah, a soldier in World War One, and that happened. Feels like it, doesn't mm-hmm. it? So, Mr. Gower is in the back room of the pharmacy. <clears throat> mistakenly putting poison in the capsules that are going to go to Mrs. Smith around the corner. Yeah. George sees it. And at the age of what, maybe 10, mm-hmm. that's a pretty big burden to carry. Yeah. He sees a sign on the wall that says dad knows best. And this is also a really good introduction into some of the other elements in Bedford falls, mm-hmm. namely Mr. Potter. Yep. So George runs to the bank savings and loan to get dad's advice because the sign says dad knows best and only to find his dad in the middle of a battle with the devious, greedy Mr. Potter. Who has zero redeeming qualities to a character, like, at all. He's <laughs> the most hateable guy in film ever. Ever. Like, he's he's scum. He Just, is. like, usually, like, you know, we talked about, uh, and maybe we'll talk about next week, like, you know, the way you decide to do antagonists and villains is you can kind of really take, like, a sympathetic approach and... From their point of view, they're in the right and they're doing it for personal reasons. And you can get some really layered villains that way. Or you could just go this way and just go so deep into it. Like, no, th- these guys are trash. They're going to be trash. They're always going to, like, shyst us trying to, like, just screw over everybody. And that's Mr. Potter. Like, Lionel Barrymore, Barrymore is so good at that. So 10 minutes in, we've really uncovered a lot of the inner machinations in Bedford Falls. Mm-hmm. Dad's not a great businessman, but is essential and trying to put houses over people's heads. Yeah. Mr. Potter is this greedy bastard that wants to take over everything. George is working, but has dreams of escaping. There's a little gal named Mary that's got it pretty bad for him, but it's cute and not really much to that because it's just well, puppy she, love, cute kind of, I'm going to love you till the day I die, says. Well, she said she sees him get the hell beat out of him by Mr. Coward. <laughs> and that's the part that's rough, though. Yeah. So when he doesn't deliver the pills mm-hmm. and the woman that he was going to deliver the pills to calls Mr. Gower and says, where are they? George comes back, pills in hand, because they were poison. Yeah. And man, Mr. Gower unloads on his ear, basically erupts his eardrum, and it's bleeding, Jesse. Yeah. And you know what George does about that? Doesn't go to CYFD. <laughs> Doesn't act like a bitch about it. Yeah. He takes it like a man. Yeah. I think recognizes he, what's causing Mr. Gower to do it and sees the larger good in the moment versus the shorter immediacy of the ear he, being pummeled. He meets him on his level. He understands where the grief's coming from, so I think he can address it uh, very effectively. Like He knows why he's upset and very psychologically is able to reason with him. Like I know what you, you're upset about your son, but this isn't, this isn't the reason to go about it. And it sets, sets forth this lifelong kind of bond just between these two characters. And we don't see a lot of Mr. Gower through this film, but in the very next scene, he's graciously gifted George with this suitcase that he's going to take on his world travels before he goes off to college. No charge. 
It has his name engraved on it. So that alone is enough to, to me, this film's a lot of pay it forward. Be good to one person and they'll help you out along down the line. Amen. And uh, I, I think George understands that. And I can understand how discouraging that must be for him in a town like this where it's essentially mom and pop shops, the Bailey building and loan, and then Mr. Potter. Like, this is just a metaphor for, like, what this looks like. This is, like, every small town that, like, lives on like that. And then a Walmart comes in. And Mr. Ba- oh, and, well and Mr. Potter is the Walmart. Like, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So especially if anybody knows anything about Walmart's corporate model, it is literally to destroy all the local mom and pops in the place and create a monopoly. Like yeah. it's so spot on. Yeah. So it is it is, it is evil. So you're you're constantly trying to keep that at bay while trying to do the good thing. And essentially the good thing ends up wearing George down throughout this film to the point where he has no other options uh to turn to. For George Bailey, heavy is the crown, and where Clarence might be his guardian angel, he is the guardian angel of Bedford Falls. Yeah. And he's going to be the one that's going to Sherpa all of the strife and turmoil mm-hmm. in order to allow things to function properly for the citizens of Bedford Falls. And the trick in this is he doesn't want to be there. Yeah, He has this immense responsibility of protecting all of the inhabitants of Bedford Falls. And look, they do they don't treat him poorly, but he is significantly more knowledgeable than just about everybody else in that town. Mm-hmm. And this crown that he wears on this throne is more like an iron maiden that he's trapped in because he doesn't want to be there. That suitcase is perfect. The first suitcase he looks at Jesse yeah. isn't big enough. Yeah. There's not enough room on there to put all the stickers of the places that he's going to go see. Well, I, I try and put my... Big, big plans. Yeah, I try and put my my feet in the shoes of people born in small towns uh, who all must aspire to want to see more than their little 300 population. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to see the big city. I want to travel the world. Mm-hmm. And there's something about getting stuck in those towns that is difficult to swallow. And I think that's what George's big crux of this film is, is I have a lot of outs. I can, dad's paying for me to go to college. I'm going to go travel. But then every time he turns, there's, his soul is just so pure that he can't let, he can't let Potter win, that he's got to keep sacrificing a little bit of that freedom until eventually he's essentially stuck in Bedford Falls. He's always just one more hurdle away from getting out of this town. Mm -hmm. Just got to get over the last hurdle and then across the finish line through the tape and it's freedom. So we've never seen this or it's never shown to us in the film, but uh, just from what's given to us, has George ever left Bedford Falls? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I don't even think to the neighboring town. Mm -mm. I think he's lived his entire life in a 15 mile square, you know, radius of Bedford Falls proper. Look, it's a nice town. But he's the backbone of it. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to Mary Hatch in just a minute because I think she's as much to his backbone as he is the town. Well, let's get to her right now. Let's, all right, yeah. let's do it. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> she's great. Yeah, so their introduction is at this graduation dance for his brother. And he's been aware of Mary for decades, <laughs> just mm-hmm. always looking at him and this and that. And it's not until this moment that, like, and Capper is just such a genius the way he shows it with like long shot and then close up of like of her especially to really kind of show yeah George you shouldn't be looking the other way on this especially Donna Reed oh my god like 
she's just so perfect, uh, good natured as a character as he is. I mean, when we when we get down to the the ending at the end of the day, the only reason it comes together is because of her. It's funny about this too, this this bit that you're going into right now. Mm-hmm. Before we get the the rebirth, if you will, of Mary Hatch, Donna Reed, God bless Donna Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, literally the quintessential girl next door. Yeah, it's juxtaposed with a brief interaction with Violet Bick, Gloria Graham. For me, my entire life. Spider-Man mm-hmm. and his relationship with Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy is everything that is Violet Bick and Mary Hatch. Yeah. That you that's, hit the jackpot pretty... tiger bullshit, the, the Mary Jane bullshit. That's Violet So that's Bick. Violet. <laughs> Absolutely. And Gwen was Mary. Yeah. And so watching that, por- and in kind of like a reverse way with the looks, because, sure, yeah. you know, Gwen was the blonde, mm-hmm. whatever. But, oh, that's pretty good. Um <laughs> There's nothing wrong with MJ or Violet Bick. They're just a little bit race car. A little fast around the curves, a little glamorous. And that's fine, I guess. But then there's that and the components that George Mm -hmm. is really suited for, which is to be this really great dad and family man. And I'm going to ask you, same thing with Gwen and Mary Jane. Who's better suited to be his running mate there? Oh. Violet or Mary? Yeah, Mary, of course. By a mile, yeah, right? Yeah, maybe even better than him. <laughs> and presented in such a glorious, to Capra's credit, like revealed to us with like, oh, like mm-hmm. this great, beautiful shot mm-hmm. of the very fine, and that's, I think her features are fine. Like she's sharp and fine, like Garbo-esque. Yeah. If you can get her at the right time, this, sharp. This is going to be a weird compliment, but maybe not. Her hair. Like there's just something about like the way that her hair's done in this film that like even makes it more uh, homely and welcoming. Like it, it, it's cute, but it's like it fits her so well. Uh, it's how could you, how could you deny? Like at, at that point, I just, you slap George Bailey across the face and like, you should have locked her down years ago because she, and, and the thing is she's into him. This is karate kid all over again. Yeah. <laughs> when the female is so into the, to the male protagonist and he just can't see it. And it's like, what's it going to take for him to realize that? And well, Violet Bick is glam and glitz and Mary Hatch is heart and soul. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. And you get it right now. Glam and glitz is fun. But you you want, want a vacation in in Vegas? Yeah, you live at home. Yeah, you go, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think Capra is a master at getting that through. No one, no one is. And there's nothing like there's literally nothing hateable about, about Violet Bick. She's like, yeah, what? I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't say hateable. No, no, no. There's a moment or two where you're kind of like, yeah, she's a little bit snooty, but. Well, she's a little morally loose, but it, I don't think it's a detriment to her character. No. And like, even especially when she's down, down, and George is still trying to take care of her. Yeah. And, you know, just because they're still so close. I mean, everyone knows everyone in this town. Everybody's in everybody's business. Mm-hmm. That's that's the part that would drive me nuts about a small town. Except in Bedford Falls, yeah, a little bit of that is welcoming because it is fairly wholesome. Yeah. So as long as there's nothing that you're trying to keep hidden, save that for Vegas where yeah. no one knows you. 
So if there's any more reason why you think George and Mary shouldn't be together, and then you have the following scene that that precedes this. Dance by the light of the moon. What do you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Mary? With your wishing rock. What do you want? (laughs) You you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it. And it all dissolves, see? And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Am I talking too much? Yes. Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? How is that? Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? Want me to kiss her, huh? Oh, you just wasted on the wrong people. Yeah, and if you if you kind of just see this courting scene, if you want to call it that, is just so so fun, and they're so good together. The chemistry is just off the charts at the at this point. So you're just kind of waiting and waiting for something to happen, and then of course, as this film goes on, something gets in the way, and his dad's had a stroke, and I must go attend to that. And then Mary gets kind of put on the back burner for a little bit. And that's kind of sad. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, he had a good thing going there. And he didn't talk to her again for another four years, it seems like. Moments away from being a couple. Yeah. And And fate just steps in and says, well, we're going this way now. Look at these hurdles. They Mm. keep showing up to keep George from getting to whatever the finish line is. What we don't know, and we're going to come to find out through the rest of the story in the film is that Mary's actually listening to everything that he says and 100% trusting what he says. Want me to lasso the moon for you, Mary? Like, that's going to play out. The Buffalo Girls, once you come out tonight, that's going to play out. The throwing the rocks at the Granville house, that's certainly going to play out. Mm -hmm. We don't know what her wish is at the time, but her wish is, I want to live in that house with you, George Bailey. Yep. And there's also a protective element that we see from her prior to the throwing of the rocks. Look, here's the trope, I guess, or the idea is if you throw a rock and it breaks glass, you get a wish. And this house has been pelted (laughs) with rocks. And I always am like caught thinking of that expression. Those who live in glass houses Mm -hmm. shouldn't throw rocks. Mm -hmm. And that's not a glass house. Yeah meaning that they're a little bit more salty. There's a little bit more sturdy than... It's a Shantate. I think E.T.'s got a room in the back, but solid enough to still stand, right? Mm -hmm. So when he throws the rock, he's probably wishing for greatness on distant borders with harems and multiple wives and all that other you know exotic life that he so, so yearns Mm -hmm. for. She sees through that, Jesse. Yeah. She recognizes that, like, that's kind of bullshit, George. That's that's pretty childish, and <laughs> that's, that's exactly bullshit. what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not really the way you live your life, and yeah. no one lives their lives like that. Even Sam Wainwright mm-hmm. doesn't really live his life like that. Yeah. And wishes for something that is so simple and so achievable if she can just lock George down. Yeah. And he gives her a ton of information. He is literally putting the ammunition in that gun, isn't he? Yep. Why don't she kiss her already? And he's ready to plant one on her, and she gets a little scared and runs away. And we get a moment of levity that also is very prevalent in this film. Her robe falls off. Yeah. And she's hiding in a bush. Yeah, naked. <laughs> and he's having a field day with it. Yeah. Which I love about him, too. Mm-hmm. 
But then it shows his loyalty as soon as news drops. Yep, family. Everything goes out the window. Well, let's just jump right ahead to what you said was your favorite scene of the entire movie. Yeah. Four years later, Harry comes back from college. He's married. <laughs> uh, he's uh, got a job lined up, which crushes George because the deal that they made was you go to college, you finish, you come, you take play, and I'm going to go do that. Yeah, I'll run the business while you're at school, then we'll switch roles. And then he finds out about this job, and I love when he asks, he's like, is it a good job? He's like, it's 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 all right, but opportun- uh, there's opportunities there, um, and Harry's good at it. And you kind of see George like, he's, what about my opportunities? But, and I also kind of see, he's like, well, he's got to take it then, you know what I mean? He's always putting people before himself. Yep. So they have this wedding celebration, and then he's just like, oh, I'm just going to wander the town and kind of be an ass about it and walks past Mary's house. Who's like waiting for him. Cause mom called and says, George is going to come see you She's playing matchmaker over there, which sounds nightmarish. I'll just say that right but now. But mom's right this time. She's very right. Uh, Never else in the history of mankind, but in this film, mom's right. And I love this. This and this is why, why uh, Jimmy Stewart is uh, mm-hmm. one of my top, top three favorite actors of mm-hmm. all time is his ability to, to switch and his range because he is so wholesome and good-natured, but, man, when he wants to play jerk and asshole, mm-hmm. he's really good at it. And so he comes in. He kicks the gate down. She's p- painted this. Uh, who knows how long this took her to paint this George Lasso's The Moon Portrait. She's playing Buffalo Gals. Uh, Won't you come home tonight on the turntable? And he can't even give her the time of day. He would rather be anywhere else but here. Her own mom doesn't even want him there because Sam's on the, on the line. And then in that moment when they're on the phone with him, and it should be a moment where it just is just so filled with tension and anger is where they actually come together. And mm-hmm. that's where it seals the deal. And it's it's brilliant. And it's because the two of them are so good. And th- th- there's obvious chemistry there. These people, these two people don't hate each other. Mary Hatch is promised, I guess, in a sort of way in her mom's mind to Sam Wainwright because Sam Wainwright offers the life to Mary's mom that George often dreams about Mm -hmm. money, plastics, opportunity, (laughs) literally. It's what he's into. He's into plastics, right? Isn't that Sam? Plastics. Yeah. Plastics. (laughs) Glass for, um, Henry Bailey. Mm -hmm. And George is doing something like not building plastics or glass, but building homes. It's just like, that is such a strong metaphor, but here's the problem even though mom wants to see that and George also yearns to go experience that, that being the life of exotic um, adventure or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mary, the entire film is able to see past all of that to what the most necessary and important piece of keeping this going is like a rock Mm-hmm. Mary's a rock uh, backbone doesn't do her justice. Yeah. As we get later in the film and he goes through his episode and freaks the F out, like Mary's still the backbone. But in this scene, they have a little bit of a fight. Yeah. Cause he comes in, like you said, and he's a jerk to her. She's been waiting for him. Like you said, painted this picture, has this music ready to go. The courting process is about to recommence and we got to get this thing going. Cause I'm ready to have a family mm-hmm. and do you and like, let's be us. <laughs> Which of of yes, and he's the worst. Yeah, he's just yeah, he's I, I hate the way he acts in this scene. Actually, yeah, she starts singing the song. And he's like, "What's your problem?" Or like, "What the hell are you doing?" Or mm-hmm. he just 
oh yeah, that. Like belittling it and then looks at the, is that a new dress? Do you like it? And it's okay. And the only reason he comes back into the house is because he left his hat on the couch. Well, and he's also pissed off because he's just been scorned by Violet Bick. And here's the crazy thing, Jesse. Mm-hmm. He's been scorned on the date that he didn't get with Violet Bick and the date that he was going to do with Violet Bick yeah. is literally what Mary Hatch will do with him like this. And how do I know? Because I watched her jump in the pool with him and laugh after. Yeah. Like we're what he wants from Violet Bick mm-hmm. or just wants. Yeah. Is what Mary's ready to do right now. It's just, it's at home. Mm-hmm. George can't get past that idea. So they have their squabble. Mm-hmm. Do you have the sound of them that you're going to No, play? no, I don't. And what ends up happening is George leaves, stomps out. Sam calls. Mary calls George back in because Sam wants to talk to the both of them. And you get that great shot, very Hitchcock and Notorious with Grant and Bergman. Well, Capra doesn't even break away. It's like done in one singular one cut. Take. Yeah, I love it. And they're sharing the same breath. Mm-hmm. And you just can tell, like, it's coming. And, man, George gets caught up in it. And he can smell her, and he can feel her, and he wants her. I don't mean sexually. I just mean he's ready. he's ready to, like submit to what is inevitably coming it's and a man re- it, fights it's, it it's a realization moment for him i think it finally clicks for him like it all locks into place and i think at that moment there's like yeah i guess i am okay with the little slice of home with the opportunities to still travel and at this point donna reed is praying to god she's not going to get kim novak right yeah i know right because uh, so, it's this that is for a little bit a little bit of the same jimmy Stewart. a little bit yeah so he grabs her by the shoulders. This is, we're talking about Donna Reed here, mm-hmm. Mary Hatch, and says, I want to see the world and I don't want to settle. And you realize like, dude, you're not settling. Yeah, no. You've kind of just hit a grand slam. And then eventually Mother Nature runs its course and he kisses her and away we go. Well, they finally get married. But this, it's, it's it's a little bit violent. Would you? Is that fair? Oh, yeah. It's a, <laughs> I want to say abusive, but angry. like the, the- Angry. Yeah, yeah, definitely angry. Uh, this is the part that absolutely wrecks me in this film. So they finally get married. They're going to go on this honeymoon and the building alone has such financial strife through this entire film. They can never make ends meet. They can never break even. And now here on the day that they're supposed to finally, he's going to get, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm married home girl. We're going to live home, but we're going to, we're going to live it up for two weeks, a month. And we're going to go stay here and there and have the finest champagne and this and that. But then at uh, the Bailey and Loan, there's like the, the, everyone wants to take their money out of all all this investigation. That there's no money there, so George goes to see what's happening. He's like, "Well, I can't leave on my honeymoon and let them handle this this way." And people want to take out everything they have in the bank, but there's no money to give them. So, oh my God, this kills me. I do have sound for this. Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not, that's why. He's picking up some bargain. Now, we, we can get through this thing, all right. We, we've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? i got Dr. Bill's to pay. I need cash. I can't keep my kids on faith. I've got to have... How much do you need? Hey! I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? $242. Oh, Tom, just enough to tide you over until the bank reopens. I'll take $242. Tom, Tom kind of sucks, too. That'll close mm-hmm. my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. Okay. All right, Ed. Well, I got $300 here, George. All right, now, Ed, what will it take until the bank opens? What, what do you need? Well, I, I suppose... 
Twenty dollars? Twenty dollars. Now you're talking. Thanks, Ed. That's fine. All right, now, Miss Thompson, how much do you want? But it's your own money, now, George. Never mind about that. How much do you want well, now? I can get along with twenty, all right. Twenty dollars, fine. And I'll sign there the you paper. Are. You don't have to sign anything. I know you. You pay when you can. That's okay. So they're not even keeping proper books on the money going out. It's just let me keep these people happy because if I lose them, we lose this. We lose the town. It's a chess game being played here, like deep down in It's a Wonderful Life. The Bailey building and loan is the only thing standing between Potter and a complete monopoly yeah. over all of what... He looks like the Monopoly man. Right. <laughs> he does. Lionel Barrymore looks like him. Like you said, the Kingpin. Yeah. If there was a 1940s version of the Kingpin, A lot of Spider-Man him. references in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird, huh? That's funny. That's all that there is. George has the insight. So here's yeah. the other, the shocking truth about George, though, mm-hmm. Jesse. Mm-hmm. He actually is a pretty savvy businessman. Yeah. And he's just savvy in a way that I think he recognizes if you serve your clientele well and stand by them, then they'll stand by you. Yeah. It's a different business philosophy, but it certainly is one versus the very parasitic nature of Potter, which is I'm just going to take everything over and then control it Well, that's it all. a corporation mentality. I yes. mean, George Bailey has a very small business model. Walmart. Of, yeah, of meeting people on the streets. I mean, he's working in the business, talking with the people. Potter doesn't converse with his clients. <laughs> to George, a handshake is as good as his signature. It just kills me that they were this close to finally getting a slice of what he's wanted and... This happens, and, you know, Mary graciously offers, and George knows this is the only way. They give all their honeymoon money away to these people because they need it, and they just have to sacrifice a little of what they wanted. It it kills me. (laughs) It's it's terrible. As much as that kills you, does the follow-up, though, sate that that feeling? Well, it does. It just proves why... Uh, we love Mary. Hatch. Why Mary's just so awesome. So she's purchased this house, unbeknownst to George, who didn't want to live here, and it's still looking pretty rough. The old Granville place, 320 Sycamore. And it's raining, it's disgusting, it's leaking, but through the colorful characters of Bedford Falls, uh, Bedford Falls, they're able to, to kind of bring it together and create a staycation of sorts, mm-hmm. uh, a slice of paradise, but then of home. Yeah. And she's made it up to look really good. So, no, amen to her for that because you're dealt such a terrible blow, but she's she's come back in a big way. She's taken this decrepit digs, falling apart, good foundation, but the outside's looking like it needs some work. Yeah. And turned it into a hospitable place for them to start their new lives. And, again, here we go. Yeah. This is the same thing with her. The promise of the exotic abroad is bullshit. We're going to get to this eventually because this is what's right and proper and what we both really want. And the way we do it and are glorious, which is like this domestic idea, and there's glory in that for Mary Hatch. Mm -hmm. And she celebrates it, Jesse. It's not just lip service to like man, woman, family, house, mortgage. Like that's all all bullshit to her. There's a regal glory and importance to that because you're spending your time with your family. Yeah. So I love this movie. Yeah. Yeah, we missed our vacation, and I'm with you. Like, he was, we're talking minutes away from getting onto the train. They were in the cab. They were on the way to the train. Damn, yeah, I'm right there. Yes. It kills me. And then the damn run on the bank. So that pumped the brakes. But he comes home to something that is not as temporary, but more permanent. There's a permanent, that's what I want for Mary. There's yeah. a permanence to Mary. Yeah. That 
I don't know other than Piper Laurie and the Hustler. Mm-hmm. I've ever seen before. No, she speaks to the loyalty of of this entire movie of how loyal you're willing to stay with certain people. This is a perfect point in the movie to do this because at this point the film kind of does a montage of sorts and kind of catches us up up a few years. And we go to World War II and Bedford Falls falls. You know they they, they do their war part and sell the Galwar selling war bonds and this and that and uh, working for the USO and you know helping out that way and George is doing his part. So we got to talk about Frank Capra because he's an interesting cat. So Frank Frank Capra has lived essentially the Vito Corleone godfather life. He's an Italian immigrant that came over in Ellis Island in like 1903. And his family settled in Los Angeles, living in slum after slum, like hard life. Like I, I read something that he worked like like 10 hour days while going to school for like like eight straight years. And then finally for him to kind of like George Bailey, his parents had kind of helped save up enough to send him to school to give him some type of a future. And then world war one happens. And so he goes over there as a soldier, but then that's when he kind of found his love of filmmaking where he kind of got to do some stuff behind the camera during wartime. And so when he comes back, he kind of gets in, he's already set up in Los Angeles in that industry and then really starts to make a name for himself. Now, Frank Capra's like made some of, you know, the biggest films of all time. And it happened one night as one of three films to win the big five. The other two being, uh, Gandhi. No, no, no. Uh, Silence of the Lambs and, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. There you go. And I'm, I'm talking director, pitcher, screenplay, actor, and actress. That film's amazing. Mm-hmm. Maybe the first great romantic comedy to ever be made. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then he kind of just kind of keeps it going. Mr. Deeds goes to town. And then another seminal, just Jimmy Stewart film, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Mm-hmm. And then World War II happens. And so much like uh, Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra, they both are, are, they both enlist again. Yep. And so they're gone for like, from like 41 to like 45. They're overseas you know, kind of doing their part. And, you know, Frank Capra is not like necessarily like fighting in battle, but he's making like all these like war. And I wondered this, this time watching, there's like all the, like that stock war footage. I wonder if that's stuff he did probably is. Well, he Uh, may not have been fighting, but Jimmy Stewart sure as hell was. Definitely. So we'll we'll talk about, let's talk about him real quick too. So yeah, Jimmy Stewart, I, I, we mentioned this on vertigo. He's the highest decorated military officer. That's also an actor, like high ranking, like military guy. (laughs) what a stud but on the psychology end of that we like has been has been discussed this guy he killed a lot of people in world war ii Mm -hmm. like tail gunner Mm -hmm. like he probably saw like the most horrific shit people could ever see Mm -hmm. so for both of these men to see and do the things they were doing this is their both their first film post world war ii and cleansing is happening absolutely cleansing This film was a total bomb when it came out, and we'll talk about that a little at the end. But to come and do a story like this, which is very cathartic and Mm -hmm. looking at the good of what's deep down at the the soul of a person, had to have been good for the the two of them. And honestly, this is kind of it for Capra. Because it was such a bomb, he really couldn't kind of get it going again. It's shocking, isn't it? And it's great that, you know, Jimmy Stewart, at least, you know, hooked up with Hitchcock. And that was like a whole nother avenue for the later part of his career. But 
those guys have lived some interesting lives. I mean, tied to, to war and film. Like, they're such classic Hollywood. You know, there's everything to me pre-39, which is trying to figure yeah. out what film is yep. and sound. And then that year, the golden year. Mm-hmm. And then you have World War II. And now you're in the golden age of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Some of the best films ever made. Some of the most iconic actors and actresses. And then for both of these guys to come back and this is their first film and no one likes it when it comes out and it makes no money, but now it's this unanimous celebrated Christmas holiday classic. Stuart had that happen to him twice, didn't it? Many times. Vertigo too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Didn't do well when it first came out. Mm -hmm. Is it because people were still so raw? It had to have been. They weren't ready for something that was as merry and community-based and all goodness in mankind. Which, people weren't, which is fair. Literally, is the fair. words you just said make me want to yak most times. I know. Like, that's uh, things that are too wholesome are just so unbelievable to me sometimes because it is juxtaposed with the nastiness that the world offers. And I don't like watching that in film. Like, you know, you know what I mean? I like a little edge. Like, well, there's a reason we like movies like Seven yeah, and yeah. films with an edge to it. So, this, is it because it's so authentic from Capra? Oh, yeah. I think it comes across and well, he spends like literally up to this point, we've spent an hour and a half now establishing this town and these characters that I'm willing to buy into when it's going to go wrong. You're like, you're really going to feel it. Kepper really did believe in the power of community Mm -hmm. and what's not in it's what's absent from this film and glaringly absent from this film is the role of government going to fix it for you. It's not in here. This is the community is going to fix it for you and your brethren and mankind is going to fix it for you. So yep. it's a very solid take on there is no parachute coming from Uncle Sam. Yeah. The parachute is your neighbor next door. Mm-hmm. And for Capra to deliver it to you, who's cynical when it comes to gag me with that wholesome crap and buy it in a movie that is, what's this, 52? This is 46. 46. Yeah. Jesus. That's old, shall yeah. we say. That was one of the oldest films you and I have done. Yeah. And, well, and well, you, it, Mr. Cynical, sitting across from me. But you're, you're literally talking about a year after... World War II ended. You launched two atomic bombs on yeah. Japanese, like, and killed hundreds of thousands yeah. of people. To go into a film as wholesome as this almost seems a little off-putting. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. And to think about what was probably still the demons that Capra and Stewart were fighting on a nightly, daily basis from what they had just seen to come back. Yeah. And revel in the glory of the goodness that is man and your brethren, fellow people, your neighbors, who are flawed but should have your back and not piss you off and not make you want to hit stop, I think is so powerful. It's a testament to how they made this movie. Yes. You have to be, I believe, Jesse, Mm -hmm. in my soul, that if you deliver what you think and you believe so hard in, mm-hmm. it's going to play. It doesn't mean everyone's going to like it, but the authenticity comes from a place of raw, this is real me. Mm-hmm. And I think this is raw, real Capra. And if you go back to how he got here and what that promise was in those early days, yeah. then to that, mm-hmm. and if people are like, oh my God, I want to throw up, Matt's making me want to puke. <laughs> To the power of patriotism, yeah. I'm going to raise one, and if you want to raise it with me or not, yeah. there it is. That's what I take from this. Well, I just, I, I always just kind of break it down with the, the these these guys specifically, and there's a lot of other directors around this time that 
went the similar path and kind of went and kind of did their service at a time that did I give you that book? Five came back. I you gave, gave me that I book. Did, that it, did I let you read it back though? No, I've I still see, have I've it. seen. I, I've seen the documentary Netflix did on yeah. that. It's amazing. Yeah. We're literally talking about a conflict that the world had never seen before or since. Yeah. You're talking about nations against nations, and then the fear of nuclear power at this point. Right. It's a different world at this at this point. Like and you can bring in the other wars and stuff that we've been in before. Nothing really compares to that. So I just think deep down, I was like, these men may have deep down, they're making this movie, but like the stuff they saw is almost unrepeatable to people. You know what I mean? Like that, that's like, it's this truly horrifying. And the other person in consideration for Jimmy Stewart's part, which eh, could have worked that way too, was Henry Fonda, who had also kind of done his share of service. And he was Jimmy Stewart's like best friend. They were like, best buddies until they both died mm-hmm. um i don't know if it works as well because jimmy stewart in a nutshell to me is you said donna reads the girl next door he's the guy next door for sure wholesome good but let's just get right into this sequence next and why this is a christmas movie it's his ability to play range is why he's one of the best actors of all time yeah so now here on Christmas Eve, uh, his his uncle has mistakenly misplaced the $8,000 that Potter essentially steals from him at the bank uh, that they need to put in the deposit. Otherwise, you know, the bank examiner is doing like an audit on them on Christmas Eve, which just sounds silly. Meet Uncle Billy, everyone. Oh, goodness. Hard drink in the whole movie, too. So I have to, can I just tell a quick story? Yeah, do it because I loved it. So we were watching... Um, on the 23rd, this part of our tradition is we watch this film with a couple of friends of ours. And my daughter's old enough to where she's starting to be able to grind through some old stuff with me. Like I told you, Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Dracula, she did all three. And we did this and she did it, mm-hmm. which I was really shocked. She didn't get on her hoverboard or she just sat there and watched the movie. <laughs> what is this, Back to the Future? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when Uncle Billy loses this money. Yeah. So there's a scene we're getting to. Uncle Billy's going to like mistakenly give the entire savings and financial lifely lifeblood <laughs> of the Bailey building alone to Potter, $8,000. Yeah. Ava just said, uncle Billy and his damn drinking. I wish he, if he wasn't such a, wasn't such a alcoholic. Yeah. If he'd stop drinking, They'd he wouldn't make those mistakes. That's awesome. Just pinpoints uncle Billy's problem. And he's still lovable, but well, man, he, he makes a, he makes a boner here. Well, he's aloof. Like he's just so, he's just so, not with it, with this whole thing. If it weren't for George, as they said, yeah, your uncle lost this thing 20 years ago. This thing. Well, that run on the bank, he's got the fence up and the door locked and he's throwing back a flask. That's the other thing that, yeah, exactly. That's the other thing that kills me. It sounds like the Bailey building and loan is barely breaking even <laughs> month to month. Yeah. And that's got to be frustrating. I agree. So, yeah, Uncle Billy screws up big time. And, man, George is just in a tizzy. He's just like, man, without that, we're done. Like, yeah. we're toast. And Christmas Eve of all days. And then Potter is just going to do his Potter shit and just hang on to that. Theft. I hope they arrest him later at the end of this movie. Uh, and is even willing to go as far as, like, look, I need help, Potter. I need I need something. I need this. And then, like, what do you have collateral? Like, I have this life insurance policy. And that's kind of, I think, where the, the seeds planted were, like, well, hell, George. And his life insurance is, what, $15,000? Right. You're worth more dead than you are alive. So, Ouch. Uh, because, okay, so I'm glad you said that line. Mm-hmm. 
that's everything to Potter, isn't it? It's not the value of the man. It's the value of the worth of the man. Yeah. Because he's hollow and twisted and all the terrible things that George says that he's right on. But like that line isn't throwaway. That is an explanation autobiographically of Potter about Potter. Yep. You're worth more dead than you're alive. You're not even worth living. You have so little value monetarily. Well, we didn't. You even, might as well be dead. We didn't even talk about his terrible war job, which was the draft chooser. One A, one A, one A. Every one of them. The whole town. Ugh. Infantry. Gross. Frontline. Ugh. Bastard. He's the worst. Yeah. So George has no one to turn to, so he goes home, and again, other than like Vertigo. Liberty Valent, and like a few sparse films in his filmography, you'd never see him go this far. Dad, how do you spell hallelujah? How should I know? What do you think I am? A dictionary? Tommy, stop that. Stop it. Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You play it over and over again. Now stop it. Stop it. Him kicking over his desk in his office in front of the kids. I'm sorry, Mary. Janie, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I... You go on and practice. Pete, I owe you an apology, too. I'm sorry. What do you want to know? Nothing, Daddy. What's the matter with everybody? Janie, go on. I told you to practice. Now go on, play. Oh, Daddy. (laughs) George, why must you torture the children? Why don't you... Two things real quick. It's in that moment, I think, where he's like, well, shit, maybe, well, Potter said, maybe I am better off dead. I'm like, I'm, I'm a t- terrible father. I'm a terrible husband. But also, man, it's it's an absolute travesty that the only Academy Award Jimmy Stewart won was for Best Supporting Actor for a Philadelphia story, which he's amazing in that. But every other role he's ever been in, he's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Liberty Valance, Vertigo, Rear Window. On and on. Amazing and on and on. actor. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Um, but it's because he's able to do that. He's able to portray wholesome, comedic, serious jerk. <laughs> mm-hmm. He just has uh, such a, a unique range uh, to himself. So, yeah, that's that scene. That other one might have been your favorite. This was my favorite just because it takes him to a level that we don't get to see often. And I hate when actors get pigeonholed into playing a persona of what we see them as. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As this person, as this uh, thing, because then we miss out on the range that they're full, like, I, I always think of Robin Williams, comedic, Mork, <laughs> uh, Good Morning Vietnam, uh, Miss Doubtfire. But man, when that guy got into like a serious film, whether that was Awakenings or Insomnia or Final Cut. What Dreams May Come. One Hour Photo, that guy could kill it in a like a serious uh, uh, Goodwill Hunting, yep. a serious dramatic role. And that's the part that kind of kills me is the... 
you become an actor based on what you're good at and what you look like, and you get pigeonholed into those films. And much like uh, Robin Williams, I mean, Jimmy Stewart could he could play it both ways, which is amazing. Yeah, you're absolutely right on all that. His range is remarkable. Most of the time, he's friendly, ah, shucksy guy next door. Yeah. But those moments... Like you said, in Rear Window and in Vertigo. And the shootest, to a certain extent, yeah. there is final film, I believe. Moments in this, Liberty Valance, where we see him kind of embrace the darker pieces of him. It's a little bit terrifying because we're so not used to seeing That's him why I do like that. It. That's yeah. Why I like it. yeah. When he kicks over that desk and destroys that model of that bridge. That he aspires to build when he eventually gets to leave this city. That is the biggest F you life. Yeah. I think I've ever seen in a Jimmy Stewart role. Oh, of course. This man is unhinged. Mm -hmm. And unhinged for him usually is like a fist shake and like, ah, heck. That's like, he and he is spun. Mm -hmm. But this is equally matched in the moment because of Donna Reed, Mary Hatch, saying, why must you torture the children? Yeah. So she basically saying, look, I'll put up with your bullshit too, but there's a level that I won't go either. Mm -hmm. And despite that... Mm -hmm. While he's off going through what you're probably going to explain here with the sound and breakdown, she's off putting out the fire, figuring out how to fix the problem. Being awesome. <laughs> she is awesome. He well, just tortured their kid. She's pissed. Ruined the dinner. He he tore out, uh, he he uh, ripped out the, the teacher that sent Zuzu home without a jacket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's about to go on a bender at Martini's <laughs> yeah. and yeah. go jump off the bridge while she's, yeah, putting out all the fires and trying to find a way to see what happened. Why is he acting like that? Because he never even told her. Yep. You just got to not only figure it out, but then figure out, figure oh, it out, and then a way to fix it. Right. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Yeah, In she, the span of a couple hours? Because yeah. the examiners are coming now. Yeah, she's the best. She is the best. So, she, so George goes and treats everyone terribly that he runs into, runs into a tree, drunkenly drives that jalopy, like... <laughs> into this tree and then it's like oh man i'm gonna go to this bridge and he's praying and i'm not a this isn't a religious movie i mean the elementals may have been talking at the beginning and clarence may be an angel but like this man even says like i'm not a praying person no i don't believe in this right but i'm looking for anything at this point and then boom clarence shows up and jumps in the thing and then jimmy stewart just jumps head first dive like he's like in the olympics into this freezing cold water to save this man that he's never met uh, and then that sets the, the rest of this uh, into motion here. Oh, it's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Well, where do you come from? Heaven. <laughs> I had to act quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you tried to save me. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. Uh, uh, very funny. Your lip's bleeding, George. Yeah. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I've watched you grow up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? <laughs> well, who are you then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody? AS2, what, what, what's that AS2? Angel, second class. I love this, like, bridge security guard guy that here that's kind of helping them out, and he just keeps flipping out at any 
word that comes out of this guy's mouth because he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I was buried in this shirt and, and <laughs> yeah. I'm, an, uh, I'm from heaven and I'm an angel. Right. This guy's like, oh, my God, am I drunk or what am I on? <laughs> what I always forget watching this every time is how short this section of the movie actually is. So from the point he meets Clarence to the end of the film is maybe about 30 minutes, maybe a little less. The film spends a good two and a half hours like setting up George Bailey and Bedford Falls and all the strife so that this all pays off so so much at the end. Yeah. So Clarence is gonna take George on what do you what do you wish for? Wishing Rock. I'm just teasing next week. Yeah. But uh what do you wish for? And he says, Well, like, like I wish I was never I wish I was never born. I was like, Well, okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you a little trip down that that mm-hmm. lane. So he just erases him from the timeline. So George gets to walk Bedford Falls, excuse me, Pottersville, um, as if he never existed. And it's a scummy, disgusting place. I mean, they go to Martini's first, and I like that Jimmy Stewart orders a double bourbon. (laughs) I do too. (laughs) Yep. But everyone's just like, it's just a disgusting, it's not like a fun little dive bar like it looks. It's like this, like, almost like this quasi speakeasy and it it looks like they're doing nefarious stuff in the back (laughs) with violet big the bartender's a a dick and Mm -hmm. just throws the two of them out he's like well what the hell's going on here he's like you're not you don't exist george like we're gonna walk through this as if you were never around and then it's through this journey that i absolutely love he goes to visit his mother doesn't know who he is um his brother died in the ice all those years ago, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Gower comes to the bar. This lo- a rumhead. Yeah, he's like crazy Ralph. He's like this like loony insane man that like just like runs the town that's been kicked out of everything. Yeah. And <clears throat> kind of goes through, like you said, the main drag of Pottersville, which is just bar after strip Pawn club. shop, <laughs> gambling hall, just red light district. Yeah. They've yeah. taken the perfect domestic little town and turn it into Vegas, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's what we turned it into. Yeah. And just one after the other. And he's like, what is happening here? And it's not until I think he, he goes to see, well, where's Mary at? And Mary's like, Mary's an old maid. And he goes to the library and she never married because she'd always been in love with George, apparently. Mm-hmm. And doesn't know who he is. And like, that's like enough for him to click. Well, man, I really messed this up big time. And, through that entire montage, I don't know how long, maybe 20 minutes it probably is. He sees his old house that has nothing in it. All these people that don't know who he is and all this profound influence that he has had on their lives. That is just non-existent in this version of the story. Is this striking to Dickens and Christmas Carol? Oh, Chris, of, of course. Christmas future Absolutely. To you? Yeah, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite stories. Yeah. And well, this is the best part of that story is, mm-hmm. and this has been parodied so much in pop culture of, let me take you out of the scenario and just look at what it would be like without you. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, this is the overall message of the film. This is Capra's Capra's goal at the end of the day is just, there is value in all life and take one person out of that equation and you kind of see the ripple effect that it has throughout these people's lives. Well, if George wasn't here to not tell him about the poison pills, that guy is a serial killer. He murdered like like seven or eight people. Uh, if he's not there to save his brother, his brother dies. He's not a war hero. All of those people died on that war barge that he helped save. It's not a town that's hospitable for families because Potter's taken it over and turned it into Chantateville. They literally live in shacks. Slums. Potter yeah. slums. Mm-hmm. 
one thing Violet Bick, as crazy as she is in this film and is loose around the periphery as she might be, she's mm-hmm. full on crazy loony. We talked about that moment. She's caught in the middle of some skirmish shouting some craziness. Well, they're throwing her out of one of the clubs and she's like, don't get thrown out of a strip club Yeah, or gambling. What? Mm-hmm. You got to be some kind of an, what? Yeah. Violet. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing has gone to the dogs because George was never there. Mm-hmm. And this gets back to the backbone. He prevented all of those things from happening. What Clarence is showing him is an alternate reality. That was a decision away from becoming reality. Yeah. So George has had a wonderful and immense impact on Bedford Falls. And we get that moment where it clicks on him and he sees like, oh my God, I really did have a wonderful life. Yeah. And so now it's, we've got to at least go say goodbye to the family before he goes to the, you know, who for embezzlement. I'm going to jail. But it's like when he, when he, his coherence comes back and he asks for it, I'd like, I want, I want my life back. I want to live again. I want to, I want this. That he goes and pays his respects to the town. Yay! Yay! Hello, Bedford Falls! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, George! Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry Christmas, Emporium! Merry Christmas, you wonderful old building alone! Hey! Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! Happy New Year to you! In jail! Go on home, they're waiting for you. The Saturday Night Live skit where they just beat the hell out of him. Dana Carvey just unloads yes. on him. That's, it's that's his just desserts. That's what he needs. It's so. almost not even enough in that, huh? I know, <laughs> right? He's the worst. Uh, yeah, but that's the last we're going to see with him. I would love to see him taken to justice and whatnot, but that's not the point of the film. So we go back to his home where the creditors and the people are ready to arrest him and take him to federal prison. Yeah. And no, man, it's all about family. It's all about embracing the kids, embracing the wife. And then as she comes in and then the community pours in with all of their pay it forward. Like you helped us out all those times ago and all this and this and that. And we're going to, we're going to do the same. And they, they make all this money here. It's just like, it's, to me, like, I've always, I have to tell this to a lot of people because, like, Christmas is interesting to me because I like gifts, you know what I mean? Like, birthday, like, who doesn't love receiving a gift? But, like, like I, this is better, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, giving people, you know, paying it forward, doing, like, this is truly what Christmas is all about. Like, yeah. it's, it's. It's not about oh, what's the shiny new thing you can get this year. It's 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 literally about like just being good people. Yep, being good people together. And this and this is why I think this is why this film kind of gets to me at the at the end of the day is each person comes in and Capra's brilliantly established each one of these characters and even Mister Crabby old guy that wanted all two hundred and forty two dollars out of the bank last time is coming to pay it forward to George because of what he did for him that day mm-hmm. and they're telling it up and they're going to make more than enough but then. Um, uh, what's this guy's name? Harry? Sam Wayne. Sam, Sam Wayne, right. $25,000 cash advance. That's going to more than cover his 8000 that he needs and some. Maybe enough to travel finally. Yeah. And 
they got it all. And Matt, this is the part that just absolutely wrecks me every time I watch this movie. And uh, thankfully the sound will be at the end of the episode. Cause I'm not going to play it now. Mm-hmm. Um, his war hero brother, Congressional Medal of Honor, he's had yeah. lunch with Truman. <laughs> Finally come back home and walks in, and it's it's all snowy and whatnot, and he's just like, yeah, it ain't about me, and he raises a glass and says to George Bailey, the richest man in town, oh, my God, I die. Yeah. Like, that is, even he knows, like, George, you are rich. Not financially, but this is what it's all about here. And Look at it. Yeah. At a time when $8,000 is a king ransom, yeah. these people loved you enough yeah. to take whatever they had saved for an emergency because you were the emergency. Yeah. Yeah. And then they sing, essentially, I call it the New Year's the New Year's song. Yeah. Yeah. As they're just kind of all just together, people together, being good people. And then, yeah, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. We hear it on the the, the tree ornament. Clarence has done his job. Clarence has succeeded. His arc is fulfilled. He's gotten his wings. He helped George see the light. And my only regret is that, man, I wish that the, these kids later on in their in their years, I hope they pay for a nice trip for their parents to go travel one of these days. Zuzu needs to like form a band or something. There you go. And uh, which is actually Drew Barrymore's band. Do you know that? Uh uh-uh. So Drew Barrymore, who is Lionel Barrymore's great niece. Mm-hmm. Formed a band called Zuzu Petals. Oh my God! From this, mo- yeah, from this film. I didn't know that. That's the truth. And it's the petals that fall off the rose that led to Zuzu getting sick. That he sticks, he being George, sticks into his pant pocket. That's a big moment to realize that he's come out of that. Good alternate for her. Reality. That's a great reference. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Zuzu's petals. So that's a uh, that's a capper on on it's a wonderful life. It's uh, I got a couple things here. Do you have anything? No. Anything to add to? Anything? That part wrecks me too. You're I not did. alone. That's why I can't play the sound. Yeah. It's the brother comes in, says that, and I'm just like, oh God, like this this is what it's all about. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right, I got a lot to say here. Um, okay. Uh a colorized version was done in the late nineties. Uh, but Capra was gonna be involved, but then it like because of the way that these deals kind of go through, they kind of had to push him aside and kind of do it without him. When did Capra pass away? Late seventies, sorry. Okay, and uh, so the it's not a the color version is not a director approved version mm. of because he was going to sit down there and color time it to how it looked and mm. so I got I got a lot of hard time putting hard faith into what that looks like. It's on the DVD or the Blu-ray. I can't watch it because there's just something about the black and white of this film. We uh, didn't talk about this. Can I say one thing? Yeah, go ahead. The sets mm. that they've created around Bedford Falls look magnificent. Yeah. That scene when he's running up the road in the rainstorm to get to the bank when the run is going on, he looks like he's in the middle of small town America, USA. They did a great job yeah. building Bedford Falls. It looks good. It looks better, I think, in black and white. Mm. It looks... It looks... All those film sets look better in black and white. Yeah, they now, do. There's... It's... Honest, honest, Wizard of Oz, it's is mm-hmm. a seminal moment, but like honestly, black and white really for me doesn't work until like the early 60s. Like, mm-hmm. if we're being really truthful about it, like everything, like I, I want black, if my film is set before that year, I want it to be in black and white. Yeah. Uh, $3 million budget, $3 million gross. I mean, it barely broke even. And like I said, people, it was mixed reviews. It didn't, it wasn't like this hit that it, when it came out, which is a shame. It is the number one movie on American Film Institute's uh, most inspirational movies of all time. 
Hmm. Nominated for five Academy Awards, won none of them, but it did win. This is hilarious. It won a Technical Achievement Award. So before uh, special effects in Star Wars, they used to give these special awards to just an individual film for doing something unique. And this film got it for the creation of the fake snow in Bedford Falls. What a weird award. Yeah, win nothing else. Nothing for Stuart Capra or the whatever, but yeah, give it to the fakes. But it looks good. Yeah, it does. Yes, it looks really good. This was Capra's favorite film that he ever made. Really? Yeah. Added to the National Film Registry. And mm. like I said, the first post-war film for Capra and Stewart, which, like you said, had to have just been just so therapeutic for the two of them to do a film like this after kind of what they had gone through. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite tasting note of It's a Wonderful Life? Have, that, we, have we kind of both mentioned both of ours? Yeah, or? so not much detail more on that. It's that scene. Um, the courting scene, premarital shaking bit. I don't so, know what you would call uh, that. No, that's I know what you're talking. About. That's it's it's a great coming together finally. The admission of love scene, I guess. And mine's that room trashing bit again. I just mm. I like seeing actors do stuff out of type. Um, because it's when they do it well, it's like man, like what else did we miss out on? Like, could, strange that we're both around the two kind of angry moments in this film. Well, and it's just like, could Jimmy Stewart have played uh, uh, Frank C. Dobbs in Treasure Seer Marty? He probably could have. He probably could have been really good in a role like that. Let me ask you a question. There's a lot that we're going to get. I want to ask you one quick question. Okay. 12 Angry Men. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The bad guys at 12 Angry Men. Yeah. Which one of those is Jimmy Stewart? Who's Jimmy Stewart the best? Lee J. Cobb? Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Wouldn't it? Yeah. I think so, too. Oof. That was a juror cool. eleven. I think that's juror eleven. Yeah, yeah. yeah that could have been something. You might want to do that movie someday. Oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah, that's. We'll do a single location Ooh, cast. Yeah, good. Because mm-hmm. you're in that room the whole movie. Uh, thankfully, he got to do like because Vertigo to me is just everything I think he ever wanted to do as an actor mm-hmm. in Spades. And again, not appreciated when it came out. I hate film audiences sometimes. <laughs> Right. Thing, blasphemy, E.T., stealing all that. Uh, what's the... Hang on, I have to cue it up here. I'm not prepared. What's the... Oh, my God! Moment of It's a Wonderful Life. For me, it's the part when Mr. Gower busts his eardrum. Oh, yeah. I, Bleeding. Uh, yeah. It's straight abuse, Jesse. That is straight-up child abuse. Yeah. But... It's forgiven by Jimmy Stewart, but that doesn't mean as as uh, Peter Bailey or um, George Bailey. But man, it doesn't make it any easier to watch. He is just hammering that injured ear, and the way that Capra, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm going to make that thing bleed. Whew. I I, have, I almost have to not watch that scene. Mm-hmm. It is so so ugly. It's like and it's drunken abuse too. Yeah. It's something else about when they're hard drinking that makes it worse. Yeah, mine's when they have to give up the finances from their honeymoon. Every time, I'm just like, man, he was so close, and but he they, he did a good thing in in that regard, mm-hmm. uh, and it, and, it, and it pays off in the end. Who's the master distiller on "It's a Wonderful Life"? I can't imagine that going forward, we're not going to get a chance to mention who I think would be the first two obvious ones. There's no way in the trajectory of what Rye is, we're never going to cover Capper or Stewart again. Yeah, I would hope not. Yeah. So I'm I'm acknowledging them without acknowledging them, and I'm going to give it to Donna Reed because okay. I don't think she will come up again. Okay. 
we're not going to do the Donna Reed show. <laughs> there is a heart and soul and backbone that she provides in this film that is as important as the tapestry on the walls or the wallpaper that she's putting in 326 more. Yeah. She is his soul, his heartbeat, you know, and I, not that I believe in this, but if you are familiar with that behind every good man is a good woman, if that's something that you kind of sort of see, <laughs> then Donna Reed yeah. is your heroine's heroine. Mm-hmm. She's a rock in this. And I, I mean it, I love that woman in this film. Yeah, I have a few women in film that you know that I really do genuinely love their characters. She's one of them. Yeah. That's who I'm going to give it to. Excellent. You took the high road. I'm going to take the low road. Yeah, okay. I have to give it to Frank Capra. Yeah, like he made course. a he made a masterful film. And like as everything of I said at coming out of wartime to come do this adaptation of this of this book The Greatest Gift and to just be just firing on all cylinders creating the most despicable villain of like one of of all time. One of the most sympathetic protagonists to take us on a journey that is so fulfilling and uplifting at the end of the day. And look, like I love a dour ending more than anything. Yeah. Like give me bleak, <laughs> dystopic any day of the week. But the way it comes together at the end of this is it's the Rocky effect. It's, it's the underdog, you know, coming through at the end of the day and, you know, Capra Capra's brilliant. The more that I read about that guy and kind of saw his upbringing and, you want to talk about like the first meticulous Kubrick David Fincher director that was kind of a bastard on scene, not in like an abusive way, but like in a perfectionist kind of way. Like he was it like Mm -hmm. he's like your first film auteur really Uh, guys. Great. Dedicated to his craft. Exactly. Looking. I mean, we can't go without mention and I already did mention Stuart. So there's three and like, because I took the low road or whatever the road I took less traveled high road, whatever you took the good road. (laughs) Fonda maybe plays. Mm -hmm. There's some other people that probably play Claude Rains. That's a joke. Yeah. But we don't give that to multiple people, but I'm going to say I'm not giving it to him with a wink. Yeah. Cause Donna Reed got it. Well, he's arguably the greatest actor of all time. I think you and I have very similar tastes Mm -hmm. in our actors. Mm -hmm. And he's not number one on my list because it's Cary Grant. Mm -hmm. But he's probably number two. Yeah. I, something comes up with Jimmy Stewart and I'm going to watch it. Well, number one's Kurt Russell for me, but right. that, that's more selfish than anything. It's just more of the films he's been in that I really, truly love. Well, no, I, 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 I had the same argument at number one. Yeah. But yeah, Jimmy Stewart pound for pound as like an actor and like what acting is as a craft. Yeah, he's up there. Like he's with Marlon Brandt. He's with all those those amazing guys that like. We'll talk about acting. It's going to come up next week because I got this whole thing I want to do next on next week's episode about actors and acting and mm-hmm. what it's all about. Mm. Um, but you kind of like back then it, it seemed like this is what they really wanted to do and they, they just gave it their all. You know what I mean? It was less about the celebrity and more about doing craft. doing something you really loved. And I see that from Stuart. This, this seems like something he really wanted to do. He wasn't Strasburg. He just got it. Yeah. He wasn't method. He just got it. Mm-hmm. I like that he wasn't method. There's a distinct way that method goes. Like you can tell a method actor. Yeah. 
It's James Dean, Brando. You can, I mean, there's... I, I like that stuff, I do, too. too. Yeah. It's just so fucking tortured. Mm-hmm. Because it is. You're drawing on experiences from your past to then carry out that emotion on the screen, sure, right? Yeah. I mean, I, we're probably getting into this next week, too. Jimmy Stewart was mm-hmm. able to do... And I mean this not in a belittling way. Aw shucks and everything with the versatility to fit the scene except when he needed to go Scotty Ferguson or moments of George Bailey or whoever. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. How are you going to rate and grade It's a Wonderful Life? I mean, really? Are we both going top shelf? For sure. With a bullet? (laughs) Yeah, with a bullet. Yeah. This is... Like I said, I had never seen this movie until I had taken your class, and yeah. we, that December it rolled around. And did it wreck you in class? It did. Good thing I kind of sat in the back, yeah, and <laughs> had a little bit to kind of just like get it together. But it's like it's weird. It's almost like oh, I can't believe I'm going to talk about this right now. But like crying as an emotion is interesting for me. It's just like not everything wrecks me the same. It might like other people but it's like when you get that lump in your throat and then to me when it works in film it's everything coming together it's the acting it's the music and if it weren't for that music playing the new year's song which i'm going to play here in a second it wouldn't work for me it's literally all the filmic cinematography acting directing writing uh music coming together in a perfect synthesis that like makes that emotion happen like i can't describe it but it's it's why i love movies as an entertainment medium. That's it's why I love them. Well said. Top shelf with I, the bullet. Yeah. Amen. It's the that. it's the pappy of Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. And it's only a Christmas movie for like 40 minutes. Right. <laughs> That's the other thing that I always forget about is like it's like really just like this journey of the, it's the George Bailey character study for the first half of the movie. To be fair though, mm-hmm. it is a like this movie doesn't play in the summer. It is a winter movie. Is that fair? Oh, it may wow. not be specific to Christmas except the 40 minutes, but it definitely is a winter film. Yeah. Thanksgiving to New Year's watch. Ex- excellent. Well, let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. <laughs> I love it. Me too. All right. Wrapping up twenty, the year 20, the tumultuous year of 2020. This is the final episode of the year, isn't it? With the final year, we will be in a new year for next week's episode, and we'll tease that out here coming up in a bit. But, Matt, uh, just to kind of, in the spirit of this film, giving thanks, uh, being appreciative, what is something film, entertainment, television-related in 2020 that you were thankful for? Let's do 2020 first, and then let's do 2021. I'm going to stick to film. Okay. I'm going to go all the way back to The Invisible Man. Now, we have a bit of a limited calendar film-wise because, you know, duh, we all live through it. But I'm going to go back to The Invisible Man because despite everything that's happened from then, from that point, what that did is took, I kind of think, a B-list character in the universal monster spectrum and monetized it and did it well and smart and clever and I think really breathed some life into a franchise that I desperately want to see reimagined in a great way. And to further that, 
Gosling is the Wolfman, and I don't know where that is in production now. Yeah. Some version of that is happening last I checked. Mm-hmm. I am infinitely hopeful for what that means. So I'm really thankful for that movie. There's nine months we missed out on. So yeah, maybe it wasn't Alex Kurtzman that should have been the shepherder of Dark Universe, and maybe it should have been Lee Winnell. That's a great point, Jesse. Yeah, I love that. I love that episode for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Antonio was great. I loved it. <clears throat> that was we. That things were really clicking right. You liked all like even Hollow Man for as terrible as that was. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Look, yeah, it was right. That yeah. was a fun cast. Mm-hmm. The Invisible Man cast. What a weirdo. Yeah, right. I'm most thankful for that film. I liked some other movies as well. Yeah. But that was the first like swing and crush it kind of movie that I saw in 2020. And frankly, the last. Yeah. So I'm going to go with The Invisible Man. Great choice. Thanks. How about yours? For me from 2020, look, Matt, I you'd been telling me about it for yeah. months. I was never going to subscribe to YouTube Red. Never. Like, that's silly. And I, what is it now? Honestly, yeah, I am thankful that Netflix picked up Cobra Kai. Oh yeah, for three more seasons, right? Then there's greenlit three, four, and five. Easily my favorite show on television right now. Yeah, I can't believe they took as something as silly. And the Karate Kid franchise in totality is kind of silly. Uh, to take that series and to take it in the direction that they took is nothing short of remarkable. Mm-hmm. And what they've done with the characters is amazing. The new characters they brought on is great. And I can't believe I'm going to say this right now. The season two finale of Cobra Kai is easily in the top five television episodes I have ever seen. No argument. Yeah. No argument. I can't wait. I don't know if you heard, but New Year's Day, they yep. bumped it up a week. Yep. Season three, watching that all, whole thing in one day. Is like, that what we're launching Patreon with? We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll have to talk about that. We, we might miss the bullet on, on that one, but um, there's some stuff coming up, but I'm so excited for that. And I'm pissed that I didn't jump into it sooner when you told me to, but like I said, I was never going to subscribe to that, but mm-hmm. now I'm so on board. Bring it on season three. Like, And if you haven't seen it, right, you stop and go watch it right now. Yeah. Right now, go yeah. watch it right now. Watch the or if you've watched it, go watch seasons one and two go again and get it, ready for watch it again for what next Tuesday or it's Thursday. It's truly the perfect show to me because like I can't get behind the forty-two minute show or hour-long episode. Like those episodes in that show are like 32, 35 minutes. Like they're so quick, but they're so conflicted. Every episode ends on like a cliffhanger, and I'm like, how do they keep doing this? Six days away. Yeah, Friday. So looking forward to 2021, what um, is something that you are going to be thankful for? Something more like that you're looking forward to? Maybe we'll have the same answer here. (sighs) Okay, so Cobra Kai is up there for me too. This answer is kind of ridiculous, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Sure. The first thing that is new that is theatrically released, that's what I am most looking forward to. Yeah. Um, we're going to get into Wonder Woman. Yeah, We both have watched it, and we have a lot to talk about there. <laughs> but I'm just going to say, film in the theater is just different. I've always known that I love, but watching Wonder Woman last night and what that movie was, experience and quality-wise, yeah. makes me want to get back into the theater so fast yeah. and so bad. Yeah. Because... 
again, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because we're going to cover Wonder Woman. But, man, there's a lot to talk about that that movie's not going to get talked about because it's going to be passed off on VOD. And it's a little sneaky for Warner Brothers to monetize that, I think, the way that they've done. So the first thing that comes out that's new, I'm going to see five times because yeah. I'm going to cast my vote for that experience and my family yeah. five times. Yeah. So that, that's a cheesy answer and all-encompassing, but that's literally what I mean. Well, it's kind of my answer, too. Oh, okay. Mine's the theater. Like, I want to get back. I have to get back uh, in whatever capacity because it just isn't the same. Oh. Uh, and there's just something about the experience, and it's something I think people need, whether you're a film fan or just a community enthusiast. Like, mm-hmm. the theater is just something ingrained with 20th century culture that it can't go away, at least on my watch, or at least on my timeline. Let it happen after I'm, I've passed. But yeah. it's something we desperately need. So I'll piggyback on that. And then the film that I think is going to save it, potentially. We all kind of thought Tenant, like, Tenant came, and again, we were going to tease, uh, it came when we weren't ready yet. They weren't opened fully People got to see it, but not everyone got to see it. So it was kind of a sporadic release. Like when film is truly back and I think Warner brothers has either realized their mistake or is going to try and make up for it in some films, but they're already talking right now. And the film that they're thinking about not doing on HBO max and releasing theatrically exclusively is the the film I think is going to save. And it's Denny villain waves Dune. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about a big spectacle, large format science fiction film that I think is interesting because it's complex, but I think it's the type of spectacle that could get people excited about going to the movies again. It could have been Tenant, but we we weren't ready yet. Mm-hmm. But I think by the time that comes out, and I think that's November, mm. um, and I, the stuff will come out before then. Um. And maybe I'm wrong on that release date, but I think that's the one that's going to really seal the deal. And we're back, back, back. So that's interesting because Warner Brothers had announced that was going to go to VOD and then they walked it back and said, except for Dune. It's all rumor at this point. Oh. Because, and maybe this is a tease. Let's just tease out everything right now. So I think we've been talking about doing a shot about the status of movie theaters and HBO Max especially. Coming this week. Yeah, I think we're going to do that on Tuesday. Right. And so uh, that's right. Tuesday, a shot coming, just Jesse and I addressing the video on demand or just phenomenon. What the hell's going on right, right. now? Um, but I think they've been walking back some of those releases saying, you know, well, like Tom and Jerry, yeah, VOD. Who cares? Um, but like something like that in the theater. Mm-hmm. And because they, they did this without talking to any of the directors and saying, hey, are you okay with it? They just did it. Yeah. Which is problematic for me. Sure. Uh, so. Yeah, I think that I think that there's a lot weighing. I think on that film because they spent a lot on it. They've yeah, that budget tr- had to have been two hundred plus. Yeah, they've been trying to make that movie for forever because David Lynch couldn't even figure it out. Uh, yeah, I think there's that's and that was my most anticipated for 2020. If we go back all the way to the beginning of this year of the film I was looking most forward to, which is now my most looking forward to because I think it has a little more weight now. I'm not going to cast that vote anymore because whatever I say ends up being a just disaster. Just, yeah, don't don't cast votes. I'm not. <laughs> but okay, so we'll tease that out, and then okay, so 2021, new year, new cast, and for the first time since Invisible Man, I'm glad you brought up Invisible Man. 
new films. Yep. We're going to call this 2020 Ketchup Cask. Mm-hmm. And up first, released yesterday, we've both seen it. We're going to have to watch it again. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984. 1984. I almost said 1988. But yeah, this is, we're going to end up talking about DC's whatever they're doing at this point, which I really don't know. I, I don't know what's timeline and what's cinematic universe and what's standalone anymore. I'm so confused. Uh, but we're going to talk about this film, the sequel to the the original, and there's a ton to talk about uh, just on the way this has gone, the way it was released, uh, the waiting for it. Uh, um, but I'm looking forward to it. I like talking about the superhero stuff too. You know what I mean? Uh, yes. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting in deep with, with this one and kind of seeing what that's all about. So if you are fortunate enough to be subscribing to HBO Max now, go watch that now so you're ready for next week. Mm-hmm. It's worth checking out. You know what I mean? Like, like we're going to talk about it and rate it how we do, but like film's only going to survive if you keep watching everything that they release at the same time. Like, <laughs> right. You have to play ball even though it's not in the theater. So yeah, well said. Excellent. So cheers to you, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers to the listeners. Cheers to 2020. I'm very thankful to be getting out of this hellish year and into 2021. I'm very cautiously optimistic mm-hmm. uh but i gotta get going uh i gotta go and you know take the christmas tree down because i don't know if we have any bells up uh, on there but um i'm good with 2020 i feel good with myself so i don't need any i don't need an angel coming to resurrect me for any <laughs> type of thing that i'm looking for appreciate the journey appreciate the journey i don't have a quip to add i just mean that appreciate the journey and to this i'm gonna take something from another podcast that I listen to. This is the Dead Meat Podcast. It's a horror movie podcast and YouTube channel. But he always ends every episode. His name's James Janice, and he says, be good people. And I say, be good people. Be good people. Excellent. We'll see you in 2021. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to leave us a comment or some feedback, hit us up on any of the social media platforms or at Productions at gmail.com. It's a Wonderful Life is property of RKO Radio Pictures and Liberty Films, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Hey there, Ernie, a toast. <laughs> To my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Attaboy, Clarence.